From Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 360. Today's show is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile, Memberful, and OneBlocker. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hi, Jason Snell. Hi, Mike Hurley. How are you? I'm very good. You know, with this being episode 360, we could have mm-hmm. done something interesting with that for the summer of fun, like if we hadn't already done a Back to Foreign episode. Right. I guess that would be 180, right? Or 180. I guess we already are doing episode 360, which is... <laughs> yeah, we're, we've turned all the way around, and now it's just straightforward again. We are doing something very odd for today's summer of oh, fun yes. treat. Odd. Would you like to it, explain what we're doing? It's This is a very special episode of Upgrade. Very, very special. Now, as you may know, as a listener of Upgrade, Apple, recently with Apple Music, has really gotten on the lossless audio bandwagon. They make these uh, albums available lossless and like you can listen and your mind is blown by the fact that there's no MP3 compression and or AAC compression. And of course, there are debates about does it sound better? Does it not sound better? And honestly, we here at Upgrade have received email from one listener saying <laughs> at least one <laughs> wouldn't at least at least one, possibly more, probably not, but possibly saying wouldn't it be amazing if podcasts were lossless you could hear every bit of phlegm in my throat oh, before gosh. i drink why? more hot, why hot would tea you do that why <laughs> you you can why? hear the frustration building inside mike's voice <laughs> when i talk about the phlegm in my throat why why would you do all this? of this could be available to you if only we were not cruelly connected to the lossless mp3 uh, juggernaut, the the big big MP3, if you will, lossy which, MP3, which, which or sorry, lossy. Yes, it takes mm. away. It, what does it give us? Nothing. It takes away mm-hmm. something. Not, unclear what. Anyway, this is all my intro to say. Today's episode and today's episode only will be brought to you in lossless audio via the ALAC compression format. Now. It's not what you're listening to right now if you're listening to it just randomly in your podcast player like usual. No, that's the MP3 version that we normally do. Because it would have broken literally everything. We wouldn't have been able to upload it to the CMS because it wouldn't be an MP3 file. Uh, and everyone would get super mad because there would be like a three to 400 megabyte <laughs> episode yeah. downloading, which is terrible. Nobody that might wants not that. sound any different. So yep. what we're going to do is we're going to provide... Uh, an Apple lossless version of this episode. It is, we have, uh, now you're asking questions. You're saying, Jason. Jason. But, you know, you can't, just putting the file out lossless doesn't solve the issue if you have lossy sources because then you're just uncompressing a compressed thing and, and the lossiness is still there. I hear you. And that's why I'm also proud to announce that Upgrade is being produced this week and actually for the last few weeks when mm-hmm. I changed what thing I use to record the show in entirely the whole stream from beginning to end in lossless format. Mm-hmm. So we're recording this losslessly. We will produce it losslessly and then we will release a version of it so you can just marvel at how good this sounds without any compression. Now, we also understand that for some people, the size of uh, a podcast file might be too great. And you might be saying to yourself, Jason and Mike, why do you insist on a high bit rate for upgrade? It's just two people talking. Yep. You could use a much lower bit rate. Your file sizes would be smaller and I could save on my download speed and on my download uh, limits by having a smaller podcast file. Well, for you, 
we have also provided an excellent, excellent solution just for this episode. So you can stop the player. Everybody stop their players now if you want to listen to one of these special ones. And you can go to the show notes at relay.fm slash upgrade slash 360. This is the special upgrade 360 plan for the mm-hmm. summer of fun. You can get the ALAC version or the 56 kbps <laughs> mp3 version and enjoy is what i'm saying enjoy or you can just keep listening to it like you always do i'm gonna offer one more as a special mic bonus oh oh tell me more but wait there's more but Upgrade wait, 360 wait there's continues more. there's wait wait there's more i'm also gonna do an eight <laughs> Eight An kilobits eight per second. Yeah, eight kilobits. I just because sure. I've been so we were talking about this uh, in the last couple of weeks, trying to work out what we would do, and I've been playing around with compressing the audio, and the lowest I can go down to is eight using the great uh, Fission by uh, Rogue Amoeba, mm-hmm. and it sounds so hilariously terrible. It might just be worth you know just just checking them out. So we'll put the MP3 files in there. You can tap them and sample them or you can download them. And many applications allow you to upload them if you do for yeah. some reason want to the, listen to them in your podcast. The only thing you choice. can't do is don't make this an NFT or something because we should probably like take that lossless version of Upgrade and auction yeah. that off for millions of dollars, millions right? Millions and millions That's of dollars. That's how that works, right? Yep. Anyway, this is the first and last installment in the Upgrade 360 plan. No yep. subscription cost required. You just can get it we're giving it to you relay.fm slash upgrade slash 360 to download your special upgrade episode 360 souvenir i have a hashtag snow talk question for you okay <laughs> marley's wants to know jason how does it feel to cross the brimley cocoon line oh man it's good marley's it's good uh let me explain what the brimley co- cocoon line is uh wilford brimley the actor who recently passed away he was in a movie called cocoon in the 80s where he played kind of kind of what I think is people have in their in their mind as an old guy, an old guy, and the plot of Cocoon. It's a Ron Howard movie. Is like aliens come to Earth and they want to take old people away, and the old people will live forever. It's it's an eighties movie. It's like a weird ET with old people kind of movie. Anyway, uh, Wilfred Brimley, despite seeming to everybody like a very old man in Cocoon, was actually. Uh, just a little bit older than 50 when the movie was released. <laughs> so uh, there's a funny uh, website and a funny Twitter account that uh, that basically looks at people. You can calculate your own moment when you become 18,530 days old, which is the age Wilfred Brimley was when Cocoon was released. And they tweet out celebrities who cross the Brimley Cocoon line. So it's a rite of passage. It's not turning 50. It happens a little bit after that, but uh, it's not a birthday. I had several people when I tweeted about this, wish me a happy birthday. It's not my birthday, but uh, it was fun. I put this on my calendar like a year ago of like, oh, that's going to be a day. And it was a heck of a day. So I crossed it, but you know, I didn't cross it alone. I crossed it with about a week uh, around me. People who share my age almost exactly. Matt Damon, uh, Kelly Ripa, Tony Hale from Arrested Development, and most importantly, um, Amy Jo Johnson, the Pink Power Ranger, who is who is exactly my age. <laughs> so uh, we all went across together. Me and Matt Damon and Kelly Ripa and Tony Hale and the Pink Power Ranger. We all walked across the line. And it's fine over here on the other side of the line. So, yeah, feeling good. Feeling good. And uh, <laughs> I, I, my only regret is that I should have had a big bowl of oatmeal on the day that I crossed the line. Because Wilford Brimley was a oatmeal spokesman for a, a very long time. 
It was only in this uh, discussion that I realized that Cocoon and Platoon were different movies. For some Ooh. reason, I have had those movies completely melded in my mind. I don't know why. They're not the same. They're not the same at all. <laughs> They're not even no. nearly. I think it's just no. the sound. Actually, I really okay. Let's go with this. Let's let's uh let's let's expand on this. So, um, Oliver Stone's Cocoon is a movie in which uh, aliens come down to Vietnam, and they abduct soldiers from Vietnam <laughs> and teach them how to swim in their zero gravity swimming pool. Uh-huh. Ron Howard's platoon <laughs> is, I don't know, kind of a cross between Apollo 13 and Forrest Gump. I know that's not a Ron Howard movie, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, it's it's just a feel-good movie about people in Vietnam, which is kind of wrong. But I don't know. Ron Howard, that's what he did. So there you go. Those are, those are fun. They might as well be the same movie. They're really pretty much the same, Mike. Cocoon and platoon. Yep. Same thing. Wilford Brimley. Oh, oh, oh. Wilford Brimley's the drill sergeant. Yeah. Yeah. If you would like to send in a question to help us answer a future episode of the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag SnowTalk or use question mark SnowTalk in the RelayFM members' Discord. Hey, don't forget, UpgradeYourWardrobe.com. We have three t-shirts that are available for sale right now, on sale right now. Summer of Fun t-shirt, Dongletown Surf Club t-shirt, and the original Dongletown t-shirt. These are available just one more week until July 12th. So consider this your probable final warning. Go to UpgradeYourWardrobe.com to get yourself one of these wonderful t-shirts available for just one more week. That's right. Follow up. According to Mark Gurman in his newsletter, Power On, I'm starting to think we might need a weekly segment where we talk about Power On. What what Mark is writing in his newsletter, (laughs) which again... This week in Gurman. Yep. There you go. Twig. Uh, I think that already exists. Which is, again, I will just underscore, you should subscribe to this newsletter because it's really good and interesting and I love the way that Mark is writing it. Um, But according to Mark's uh, newsletter this week, Apple are looking at opening more satellite offices in places in the US and elsewhere to allow for work to be more distributed outside of Silicon Valley. I will quote Mark Gurman, I'm told that executives at the highest levels of the company recognize that hiring and retaining talent will be one of the biggest challenges to its future success and reducing its reliance on the Valley is a key step in mitigating that issue. Yeah, this is this. I mean, I don't think anybody really believed that Apple was completely clueless and didn't understand the issues that that are facing it as much as it is this question of like, does the culture kind of override that? And are the executives at high levels sort of pushing against that? But Gurman's report here basically says they get it. There is going to be a serious problem and it's going to be ongoing in terms of losing people and in terms of hiring talented people who are not going to want to move to California and work every day inside you know, an office in Cupertino. Um, not, not that everybody will. Obviously, they've got hardware design and other groups that will be in Apple Park locked behind several security doors, and that'll be their job. But there are lots of other parts of Apple where they are going to risk losing people if they aren't more flexible. And so German's story is mostly about offices in other places, which is part of the story, right? Part of the story is, I don't want to move to California, or I don't want to stay in California, that kind of thing. So they're like, how about Austin, Texas, right? How about Seattle? How about, right? Like other cities 
the, the question I've got is, is Apple's view of the future of work at Apple that they'll have various groups in various places and you will have to move to whatever city that is to work in that office in order to get a job with them? Is it a little more dispersed where it's like you've got to come into one of our offices, but it doesn't have to be the same office as everybody else? They can all be in different offices and then you collaborate remotely. But if you do that, then do you need to be in an office at all? It's unclear. I I think the answer is it's really complicated. Apple is a huge company. Apple has a bunch of different jobs, uh, all of which have their own dynamics in terms of what collaboration you need and how much physical presence you need and all of that. Um, So I walked away from this, one, being more optimistic that Gurman is using his sources to say, they get it. They get what their challenges are. They get their their competition. It has gonna is gonna make it harder for Apple to insist that everybody move to and work in Cupertino in an office. They already understand that. They're already investing in these uh, these campuses elsewhere, and then and they realize that they're going to have to adapt even more than that. So that's all good. My my other reaction to it is I still think that Tim Cook's statement to employees was a mistake. Um, last week we talked about how, uh, I, or at least I mentioned in passing that I didn't think that the employee kind of petition that got circulated was particularly well written and it was kind of eye rolling, even though the points they were making were good. I felt like it was kind of officious and we are formally requesting and things like that, that I thought were kind of dumb and that they've gotten the, 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 the details of their mess of their language have been picked on and it sometimes distracts from the importance of what they were trying to convey. Um, I do want to tone police Tim Cook a little bit, though, because my other frustration here is I keep coming back to the fact that Tim Cook put out, uh, I think it was a video, but like basically said to Apple employees, a very happy talk kind of statement, the kind of which you would see in Apple marketing, except directed at Apple employees. And it was, we know you can't wait to come back to the office. And the reason that a lot of employees get really angry is they don't want to come back to the office. And Tim Cook was pretending like everybody is the same and they all want to come back to the office. And I I think, again, wow, that could have been a more sympathetic video. And then a lot of this would have gone away. (laughs) But instead, I feel like whoever put that put that statement together was thinking more about marketing than about maybe that there were some real issues with different kinds of employees and that there was going to be more sensitivity required than than was on offer with mm-hmm. with the super happy talk statement that he made and and I I just look at that and think you didn't it didn't need to be this way you didn't need to rile people up like this um and and so if Gurman's reports are right that there's actually a lot of realism within Apple about how work has to change at Apple then uh, that makes a lot more sense. It just doesn't jibe too much with Tim Cook's thing where he could have been much more, and we've seen him be much more sympathetic. He could have said, we understand that we've learned a lot in this last year and we're going to keep looking at this. Uh, you know, talk to your manager. We're going to go, you know, if you're somebody who's required to be in the office, uh, we're not going to make you be here five days a week. It could have been a whole lot more, uh, I guess, a little softer, softer and a little more expansive and understanding that different people have different situations. And instead it was very simple up with people. Yay, everybody, you all want to come back to work. And now that's the part that I find the most perplexing is I'm not sure what Tim Cook stated really jibes so much with what Mark Gurman is reporting. I wonder if Tim Cook has a different opinion to these other executives. It's possible. 
he might be one of these like butts in seats kind of people. It could be. I definitely had bosses like that, right? Yeah. I, I had a boss who I, who I actually liked, and I, I was a pretty good boss in a bunch of ways. And he rolled in and said, I don't want anybody to work from home anymore. I want to see butts and seats. We're paying for this office. I want to see heads here. Every time every time I, I fly in from the East Coast and sweep through the office, I want to be able to glance cursorily across the editorial group and see heads in 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 above the cube walls here mm-hmm. like it is the most surface kind of demand it was like literally i just when i'm randomly here for five minutes out of every month i want to see people here and he like i said he was actually a pretty good boss but that was just he was not a believer in in remote work and i mm-hmm. yeah that's possible it's possible that that tim cook or even other people at high levels who I'll point out, are only interacting with a certain strata of Apple employees in certain groups at certain levels and are possibly quite insulated from the rest of this. And so maybe Tim believes it, but it it also should, could just be that at a high level, when there's an all-company communication, the idea is we're going to keep it as broad as possible and as happy as possible. Yeah. And then under the surface, we're going to let all the messiness of individual managers needing to make individual decisions happen. Uh, that's entirely possible. Uh, there was a good um, piece by Charlie Warzel that I want to mention in his newsletter, Galaxy Brain, uh, that talks about these issues, I, I thought, in a really smart way and about why it's important to listen to your employees because you don't really want to be a company that says, because I said so, and your employees are uh, unhappy with that, uh, that employees are a big part of making company culture and making companies successful. <laughs> company without employees is just sort of an empty building. So... I recommend that piece as well. Um, and one of the things that Mark Gurman mentions is uh, that Apple also is recognizing that their commitment to increasing the diversity of Apple is their lack of flexibility in terms of location and workspace is actually one of the things that's fighting against their attempts to diversify their yep. workforce. Yep. Because it's so expensive to live in Silicon Valley and you end up uh, hiring people who are less diverse because they're the people who oftentimes have the most uh, money or wherewithal to afford to survive in the high cost of living that is Silicon Valley. So there's a lot. It's complicated. We've said about it before. It's you know, like this is a multi-pronged issue, right? And it, we're calling it like work from home. And that is definitely something for some people. But for others, it's not necessarily working from home. It's I don't know. I don't want to live in silicon valley i don't well, want to live in cupertino so not not to bring up our friend james thompson again but his story is a pretty famous one because he mm-hmm. was working on the os 10 finder and he was working at an office at apple but in cork ireland mm-hmm. and steve jobs said you have to move to california or you can't work at apple anymore and james quit and that's that's an example where james is not a work from home example james is actually a working at an Apple facility example. And that's mm-hmm. sort of what Mark Gurman's talking about here, which is Apple is at the very least trying to do that. And I think they are spurred on by in the last five or 10 years, knowing the high cost of living in the Bay Area and the fact that they probably have lots of candidates who really want to work at Apple and Apple really wants them to work there, but they're not going to move to California. They're just not going to do it. They look at it, the uprooting their family uh, and also the cost of living. And they say, well, forget about it. And that's why mm-hmm. Apple is building this huge campus in Austin and they've built out offices in other places. So that is a cultural change from sort of the Steve Jobs model when he came back that they are making. Um, the question is sort of like, is that it? 
you know, and I don't think it is. German's report really sort of says they're looking at everything, but I think it's left open. Um, he also mentions that there's very much this hedge in the statement, which is like after a year, you know, we'll see how this goes next year. Almost like nobody really knows how it's going to go and what the rules are going to be going forward. So I don't know. But it, it, German's report is the most in-depth people inside Apple, how Apple views this that I've seen. So it's worth a read. They're building a campus in London too. Oh, sure. Like they're doing it in lots of places. Maybe it's just- And there are already offices in London. There's somebody Mm -hmm. I know who is an Apple employee. They have lots of offices in London, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the person I know had to leave, he's listening, undoubtedly, uh, had to leave for some uh, visa reasons and spend time outside of the US before returning to the US. And my understanding is that he's- you know, Apple was just like, okay, you'll you'll work out of London in the meantime, right? Like that that, and Apple's been good. Uh, you know, at, on that level, Apple actually has been flexible and good mm-hmm. to its employees, and I think that's pretty great. So, um, and obviously, Apple has had a lot of success during the pandemic in doing a bunch of stuff remotely mm-hmm. too. So, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the anger about this from uh, people other than the employees themselves is, did Apple learn anything from this, or is Apple trying to go back to business as usual? And you know, we'll see. Um, but German's report suggests that Apple was already realizing that some of their cultural stuff was going to have to change, and they have been changing it, and perhaps the pandemic will just accelerate that. This episode of Upgrade is brought to you by Text Expander from our friends at Smile. Text Expander removes the repetition from work so you can focus on what matters most. You can say goodbye to repetitive text entry, spelling errors, or trying to remember that right thing to say at the right moment because when you use Text Expander, you can say the right thing in just a few keystrokes. It's better than copy and paste, better than scripts, better than templates because Text Expander snippets allow you to maximize your time by getting rid of repetitive things that you type and still allowing you to customize and personalize your messages. Text Expander can be used on any platform, in any app, anywhere that you type, so you can take back your time and increase your productivity. One of my very favorite things about Text Expander is their shared snippets. So we have a selection of snippets here at Relay FM that we share amongst a group of us. So there are a few things that we can do there. We can all make sure that there's consistency in what we're saying in certain circumstances, but also if there needs to be an update to something that's being sent out to people that we work with, we can actually just update the snippet and it updates automatically for everyone. So the next time that, say, somebody else will uh, fire off that snippet, it will already be updated for them. They won't need to change anything. It's really cool stuff. As a listener of this show, you can get 20% off your first year just by going to textexpander.com slash podcast. You can learn more about TextExpander there and get that 20% off your first year. That's textexpander.com slash podcast. Our thanks to TextExpander from Smile for their support of this show and Relay FM. So for some upstream news this week, Jason, I want to talk about some acquisitions going on in podcast land. Oh, boy. So Alex Cooper's Call Her Daddy, which I don't like saying out loud, podcast is going to become a Spotify exclusive, uh, leaving Barstool Sports. This is a multiple year deal estimated at around $60 million total over three years. Uh, This podcast was, uh, even for people that didn't listen to it, became very... um, in the news, at least in the podcast world a couple of years ago, because there was a big blow up between the two hosts of the show and Cooper remained. Um, and it was also yeah. a big blow up of Barstool Sports as well. Um, yeah. Spotify is going to co-produce the show with Cooper directly. The episodes will not be available outside of Spotify. I just want to underscore that a second. $60 million over three years. 
yeah, for a podcast will that will be you're basically forcing people to listen to Spotify, which is mm-hmm. that's part of that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. And I believe, um, I think Variety reported on this, I think got this correct. This is the largest podcast deal for a female led show mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting also the co-production thing, which sort of leads me to believe that that was also Spotify sweetening their offer and saying, look, we know that you're using Barstool for this and we will, you know, we will provide the editing resources, help, the, presumably that, editing yeah. and all that, all that kind of stuff so that you don't have to worry about any mm-hmm. of that, you know, and, and, and she may also have decided she didn't want to do what a lot of people are doing and sort of set up a whole podcasting infrastructure yeah. right at least right away for and was like okay Spotify will will help me out here which is uh yeah sure that would be a way to sweeten the deal too and then additionally Amazon we'll come back to that in a minute Amazon acquires the rights to the Smartless podcast this is hosted mm-hmm. by Will Arnett, Jason Bateman and Sean Hayes yes, it is three a famous comedy and well and sometimes big, dramatic actors big, three famous big actors blockbuster actors uh, this was a started in the pandemic project uh, where they interview other people. It is the most from a this is I'm not trying to be disparaging, but from a uh, format perspective, the most cookie cutter of celebrity podcasts. Mm-hmm. But it's hosted by three by very funny people, right? <laughs> I'm sure that sure. when I first heard about this show, I was like, oh, and then I heard it as an interview show and was like, no, I don't want it, right? Like if it was just mm. the three of them, I think I would have been more interested in it, right. but that's neither here nor there. This deal by Amazon is estimated to be worth uh, between 60 to $80 million. <sighs> yep. It includes a first look on other podcast projects from the company that has now been created by the three hosts. But this show will only have time exclusivity. So new episodes appear on Amazon Music and Wondery Plus one week before they're then available everywhere. So you know, you may remember Amazon Music, which is where you get podcasts, bought Wondery a while ago, the very large podcast producer. Wondery has a membership program that has an app, which is called Wondery Plus, and you'll be able to listen to it there too. So this this deal, let's just say for the sake of it, it was 80 million. I think this is the biggest deal that I can think of that hasn't required exclusivity to it. Huh. I can't recall something this large where it's still been available elsewhere. Like, you could argue Gimlet, but Gimlet was a lot of shows, and all of the new stuff seems to be locked behind Mm. Spotify's doors. This is one podcast. I would say this is the most extreme deal, although although the $60 million deal for Alex Cooper was also... uh, That's a pretty extreme deal, too. But this this is... I think anybody in the podcast industry would look at this price and say it doesn't actually make sense. No. But this is, it, it's a little bit like um, when we talk on Upstream about about video streaming services. Like, there's a couple of different kinds of value. There's the value of the, the property. And then there's the money you're spending in order to build a business or keep a business. Or I've talked to here before about the enormous amount of money being spent on sports TV rights, which has a lot to do with the fact that live sports is one of those things that is uh, one of the things that holds people to a traditional cable or satellite TV account or could potentially move them to streaming. 
And so you end up spending more money than you can make directly off the product because you're, the argument is it's bigger picture than that, right? The argument is this isn't about about the Smartless podcast and whatever other stuff that they do. It's about adding a tool for Amazon to do whatever their podcast strategy is. Um, and to to have you know have more content that is following their strategy and their approach. That's what has to be behind this, right? Because it doesn't make any logical sense. They're never going to make eighty million dollars off of the Smartless podcast directly, right? It's not going to happen. No, you you would not make that amount of money in ads over a three year period. I, I just no. can't imagine it. Um, you can make companies can make good money on ads, but. I just, I can't, I mean, I don't know how large a listenership is, but that is absolutely obscene. You know, like companies, podcast companies don't make that kind of money in a, over a three year period, right? Let alone just one show. Like this is, this is, it's more about, I guess, putting your flag in the ground, but that's why the, the non-exclusivity part is so wild to me. I'm sure they're going to say Amazon Music, Amazon Music a bunch of times on the show, right? Sure. I'm sure that they are contractually obliged to do so. But if you're still listening in, in Apple Podcasts, why would you care, right? Like, it's like, all right, whatever. Like, it's like if you just say the network that you're a part of, right? Like, it doesn't mean anything, really, right? Like, you know, people could just listen to this one show only. They hear me say Relay FM. It doesn't make a difference to them. They're not going to now be like, oh, well, let me go and listen on the Relay FM website instead, right? Like, it's like it doesn't do anything. I was like, I find that, I find that particular thing so strange. Um, I think that we are, I mean, I'm, this is not um, news to anybody that pays attention to the industry. We are 100% in an acquisition bubble right now. Yeah. I don't think the podcasting industry is in a bubble because I think that a lot of it is very is actually quite healthy right now. But the this this acquisition stuff, it's it's definitely a bubble. Well, I mean this is what I was saying is is bubbles are often created by outside influence that is making things seem more valuable mm -hmm. than they are because they're ascribing value to it that is strategic. Yeah. rather than the actual value of the thing. And you know what? If if Smartless can make sixty or eighty million bucks, then great. But you know, realistically, it, it won't. And it's more of a strategy thing that is causing Apple to do, or sorry, Amazon to do this. My understanding, by the way, I don't know about Apple, but like there there were multiple. All the tech tech giants and podcast giants were totally bidding for this, right? Like there were stories about how this was a this was a hot thing, and and so you also have the inflation where. Amazon is like, oh, we're not going to get beaten out for this one. We're going to win this one. It's like, okay, well, you know, you're paying even more money for this thing. Um, which, again, not to say anything about the podcast. It's just like they they walk away with cash. Like the cash is still good, even if the motivation for it is is not, I think, solely about the value of the thing, but about part of a larger strategy. So it's, it is fascinating. And yeah, it, it, it's you've got tech giants with enormous amounts of money and they are jockeying for position and supremacy and of course that has you know that multiplies the value of all these things to them even and, and what you end up is a situation where it only makes sense if you're a giant who has invested way more value in the strategy part of this nobody else is going to be a winning bidder of these things because everybody else is going to look at it and go yeah 
I could probably give you, you know, a, a ten million a year guarantee or a twenty million a year guarantee. But uh, then Amazon rolls up and they're like, "Here's eighty million." It's like, okay, yeah. can't say no. Amazon has also acquired the podcast hosting and advertising platform Art Nineteen. Yeah, I think Art Nineteen hosts all of uh, all of the podcasts that Apple does itself too. Like it, oh, it yeah. hosts a yeah. lot of it does. It hosts a lot of podcasts, so it's it's you know it's it's got the servers that are generating the RSS feeds and generating the downloads, and then they are also an advertising platform. Our old pal Lex Friedman, yep, uh, works at Art Nineteen. Worked, works, works, works at Amazon now. It works at Amazon now. Yes, my understanding is that a, lo- a bunch of Amazon Prime packages came to his house last week, and now he works for Amazon. That's how that works. <laughs> so, yeah, Amazon making some moves here. Um, I find Amazon's podcast strategy a little baffling because they have Amazon Music and they have Audible. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and they have Wondery and they have Art19. I imagine that this will coalesce in some way, but my my concern is is the podcasts aren't music. And I know Spotify also is like, well, no, there's one Spotify and it has music and it has podcasts in it. My concern, though, is that if you're, especially if your brand is music like Amazon Music, podcasts don't fit with the brand. So unless Apple ch- or Amazon changes the brand, like Apple Music, there's Apple Podcasts and Apple Music. There's Spotify, which they're redefining. Then there's Amazon Music. I'm like, okay, podcasts are in Amazon Music? Really? Yeah, Spotify I'm fine with because they don't. Like, I think of it as music, but the branding doesn't force it. Amazon Music doesn't make any sense. And they have Audible. Yeah. I don't understand. And the, I don't understand. So there's probably more to come there. You've got to think so, considering that they just bought Art19. It's super interesting, by the way. Just like, if you... At the moment, pretty much all of the medium to large podcast companies host at one of two places. Art19, a megaphone? Megaphone is now owned by Spotify and Art19 is owned by Amazon. Like these are, I would be uncomfortable in that circumstance because now these companies, they've got a different kind of, I don't know, like outlook on you, especially because a lot of these companies that hosted these places use both Art19 or Megaphone for advertising sales as well. They're, they're like, they're both platforms. Like we, um, we host at Libsyn. All of our audios hosted at Libsyn, and Libsyn are independent. They've been, but they've been making a bunch of acquisitions themselves, which is interesting. Uh, but as it stands right now, uncomfortable there. But if like I don't know, Google bought Libsyn, I would start to be like, I don't know if my values align with your corporate values. But then things right. start to get really uncomfortable. All the hosting platforms are being bought now as well. It's like it's just a gold rush. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, that's the way to put it, right? That you call it a bubble, call it a gold rush, but you've got tech giants, and it's not just the tech giants think that there's there's money to be made in podcasting, but it's also that it's like we don't want to be left behind, and our enemies yep. are investing in it, so we're yep. also investing in it. It's uh, it's kind of fascinating to see this happening. You know, Google, I would say Google's podcast strategy thus far has been incoherent, but they keep trying. Um, Amazon's podcasting strategy has been kind of cryptic and confusing. Remember Cryptic's Audible did all those podcasts mm-hmm. that were like, mm-hmm. is this a podcast or not? But it's on Audible and now it's a podcast and it's very confusing. They've got these different companies with different strategies. I don't entirely understand it. 
Um, maybe it will become clearer in time, but yeah. I think that's always the danger, right? Is you think maybe it'll become clearer and sometimes it does because there's a real strategy behind it. And sometimes it doesn't because it really is just the gold rush part, which is we just are going to do this and see what happens because we don't want to get left behind. Um, and you would hope with all this money being thrown around that there would be a strategy here. Back in June, we were expecting to see a new MacBook Pro. And I think a lot of the time recently, it's been a lot of questions of, hey, where is that new MacBook Pro? Yeah. Uh, according to a report from Digitimes, we could be looking at a September launch for the 14 and 16 inch M1 based or M1X based Mac, Apple Silicon base is better to say, yeah. MacBook Pros. Uh, suppliers are ramping up for third quarter shipments. It seems like mini LED is maybe the thing that has made this uh, slow this down a little bit. It seems incredibly likely that these machines will feature mini LED displays now. I, at least when I was reading this, I couldn't remember that that was a thing that we'd expected. Like it was mm. something people thought, but now it seems pretty clear that they will feature mini LED displays, which is really interesting. Can you imagine the demand if they're like, this is basically an XDR in a laptop and it's got this new Apple Silicon chip that's way faster than the M1? Like, poof. People are going to go nuts for that. And that might be why we're waiting until September because yeah. uh, Apple seem to have been trying to uh, improve the production of the mini LED displays that they've been getting for the iPad Pro. Like they have been, according to some reports from Digitimes and others, uh, struggling to keep the quality up to produce the iPad Pro screen at the scale that they need. So they have actually been investing, Apple have invested reportedly $200 million into one of their manufacturing partners to put new machines and uh, practices in place on the production line so they can have enough to fulfill this MacBook Pro. Because, like, look, the MacBook Pro, I, you know, is... is We know that laptops is, is Apple's best-selling Macs. So you've got the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro, right? The MacBook Pro obviously sells very well for them. There's, al there's already pent-up demand, and these machines are probably going to be incredible in so many ways, including that screen. So, funnily enough, like, one of the things I'm sure that will be making this machine a hotter prospect is the thing that might actually be holding this machine up. So super intriguing. I'm a little bummed I have to wait until September because I am super excited to see what this machine is going to look like. Uh, but could be a busy end of the year. Yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting to see next steps for Apple Silicon. We've, you know, we've talked about it. it it's, we've seen step one. But like step one was very impressive, but it was also step one. So what's the next step? And if you throw in something like this mini LED stuff, which is pretty amazing on the iPad Pro and you throw it on a laptop, I think pro users to get that, that, I mean, I can not only see all the Apple demos that will come out of it, mm -hmm. it's like a lot of high definition or uh, high dynamic range video demos, video editing demos and Final Cut Pro on that thing. But uh, yeah, I think that'll be really popular. But how much is it going to suck? If they do all of that, but they still don't have a good display to sell you other than the Pro Display XDR, right? Because, mm. you know, it's like, hey, look how fantastic this is. And then you plug it into this Dell monitor and you lose all of the fantasticness of your beautiful laptop screen. I know. I know. This episode of Upgrade is also brought to you by our friends over at Memberful. Memberful is the easiest way to sell memberships to your audience used by some of the biggest creators on the web. You can generate sustainable recurring income while diversifying your revenue stream. You will have heard us mention the Relay FM membership program in the past, like Upgrade Plus, which is now a year old. 
But what you might not know is that Memberful is the platform that we use to make that program possible. Memberful make it incredibly easy for us to generate an extra revenue stream and provide bonus content to our listeners. Really is the core. Like with Memberful, we're able to very easily get people to sign up. We have all of the integrations that we need so people can pay us really easily in the way that they want to. And then it will generate what we find to be such an important thing. It generates the RSS feeds, unique RSS feeds, so people can subscribe to the membership content. In one account, they can get all of the content that is available to them on the plans that they choose, and they can subscribe, and they're individualized. So if somebody pays, they get it. If they stop paying, they stop getting the content. Or if it somehow gets out into the world, that can be discovered. So it gives us the peace of mind that the content that we're offering is just available to our members because that's what they're paying for. And that's one of the key things that we love here at Relay FM about Memberful. Maybe you're already producing content and relying on advertising or other means of income. Memberful can make it super easy for you to diversify that with everything you need to run your own membership program. You can get custom branding, gift subscriptions, Apple Pay integration, free trials, private podcasts, and tons more while leaving you with full control and ownership of everything that relates to your audience, your brand, and your membership. If you're a content creator, Memberful can help you monetize your passion. Get started for free at memberful.com upgrade. There's no credit card required to try it out. Go to memberful.com upgrade. Go there right now. This could be the start of something exciting. Our thanks to Memberful for their support of this show and Relay FM. The macOS public beta is now available. Um, and we've also hit developer beta 2 as well last week. Right. Uh, and you wrote a, a uh, what would you call this? You say like a first look. It's just obviously not a review. It's like a preview. It, it's it's like a review of the first beta, but it's sure. like not a not done, so it's not really a review. Yeah, a preview, a first look, something mm-hmm. like that. It's you talked about this with Federico last week on Connected, where yep. he it, it's sort of a a draft or a beta test of his iOS review because mm-hmm. he wrote he wrote a long thing. Uh, about iOS, and I wrote this thing about macOS, and it's very much that, which is I, a portion of this will be recycled into my macOS review in the fall, and yet, very quickly, I have to write first thoughts because I want to time that to the to the public beta. So it, it is kind of like, well, you can see the structure of it too, where I go into detail on a few kind of like headline items, and then I've got this grab bag of other mm-hmm. stuff, and then I say, and then there's all this other stuff that I'm not even going to talk about because there's not enough time. Uh, and I've got the summer to worry about the other stuff. How much usage have you had realistically with um, with Monterey so far? Not an enormous amount. I installed it on the um, iMac, on the M1 iMac, and have been using it over there and have done some stuff. Like it, But it's not my primary because mm-hmm. I, I'm just not at the point where I'm going to deal with that. And rather than rebooting into... Uh, into a beta i just have the beta on this imac for now and so i spent some time with it but it is not one of those things where i've truly like lived with it every day for a while that time is coming Mm -hmm. but we're not we're not there yet and in fact when i do it assuming that i can hold on to this imac for a little bit longer um that's my plan is to sort of put it on my desk using the Monterey beta and try to do my job with it as much as possible without breaking, you know, podcasts and stuff. So last year I ended up in a situation where toward the last part of the summer, I installed 
Monterey on my, or Big Sur at that point, on my uh, iMac. And what I ended up having to do for a few months was uh, use my, use a different computer <laughs> to do my podcast because it wasn't going to work with that computer. Um, so we'll see. You know, that that's always the challenge, right? Is that our production machines are also our test machines. And that can be really dangerous because sometimes what we want to test properly also breaks the thing we do for a living. So I'm going to have to figure that one out. But I've spent a bit of time with it, but not not enough. That's what the rest of the summer is for. Before we talk about anything else in Monterey, let's just get Safari out of the way. Um, you, mm-hmm. You've you we, know, talk, we talked about it here. We've spoken about it and all of your favorite tech podcasts and uh, yeah. tech influencers. I don't know why I decided to call people on Twitter that, but that's what I've done. They're tech fluencers. Uh, like like everyone's favorite tech influencer, John Syracuse. So, you know, you've seen people talking yep. about it, reload buttons, the shape and size of them. Oh, sure. And the, and the direction they go. The direction they go, <laughs> Oh, yep. man. Nobody loves that more than me. The It should be clockwise <laughs> or counterclockwise. <laughs> Woo! Boy, that's hot stuff. Watch what you say and keep reloading the webpage. Yep. How are you feeling about Safari on the Mac? Um, I, I think Safari 15 has got a lot of problems. I think it's misplaced priorities. I, I am still optimistic that there is a battle going on inside Apple about this. Um, I think Apple has been more open and understanding about criticism of this than I've seen for most things that they've rolled out in recent years. I think that I, I ascribe that to a, a feeling inside Apple that they're not even sure that this is the right idea. Mm-hmm. At least some people aren't. I, I, I think that there's probably a lot of internal debate going on. So uh, as Federico said on Connected last week, it's our job to kind of pile some evidence up and say, yes, the outside people on the outside agree with the people on the inside who think this is a bad idea. I think my big complaint with it on the Mac is that they're making so many sacrifices in order to eke out a few pixels of extra vertical space. And I get that vertical space is important because most Mac monitors are widescreen, but like even the smallest Mac monitor is a 13 at this point. Like there's room for two rows of Chrome at the top of the screen. There's there's room. I actually have my toolbar favorites showing. So I have three rows of Chrome at the top of my screen on my Mac. And I'll grant you, I have a 27 inch here, but I also have the 20, the, the 13 inch MacBook Air. Um, I just don't understand how you decrease readability, especially of tabs so much. I think it's mm-hmm. just a huge mistake. I think that if I had to boil down to one criticism of Safari 15 on Mac, it's that they built this feature uh, for iCloud tabs that suggests that tabs are important and that people use them. And yet they made a visual redesign that makes tabs almost impossible to read and scan and understand and it's like there's a group of people who understand how people use safari and there's a group of people who don't care how people use safari they just want to do this cool thing where they hide everything in inside a very small space and i know that 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 people have criticized that as a as a trend that apple has where they put everything in junk drawer in order to make it seem like it's organized it's very much like hiding things in a junk drawer or pushing everything under your bed like the room is clean if you don't look in the places where the room is a disaster and safari is kind of like that and i just i just don't i say 
I don't understand the impulse. It's like, I understand the impulse to simplify, but I don't understand that impulse overriding usability. If you think tabs are important, why have mm. you made it so that tabs are very hard to read and that get cut off, the text of a tab gets cut off almost immediately because there's no space for the tabs to be drawn. It doesn't make any sense to me. That tab interface where they shrink the tabs down, right? That I think is actually visually worse on the iPad because the iPad screen is smaller than most um, Mac screens. Like the 11-inch yeah. iPad, when I'm using the, uh, the Magic Keyboard, but a lot of the time I'm accidentally closing tabs rather than opening them because uh -huh. it snaps to the X. But I really liked something that you said, which was uh, how can the same company that developed tab groups create an interface design that makes tabs unreadable? Like I think that that's, that really crystallizes it. That's a big question. I think they did like, too many things in once at once. Yeah. I think they should have picked one of these two things this year. You either redesign tabs or do tab groups. Don't do them both at the same time. Like it wasn't, I think it was too much. I love tab groups. I think it's a great idea. I think it's implemented really well. Um, uh, there are things I would like to tweak, but overall, like I think it's a fantastic feature and I can't wait to have it on all of my devices rather than just on my iPad. Um, but it's it's difficult. Like overall, I think the, the way that they've well, that made all of the design changes has, has made Safari a little bit, trickier to handle which is uh, frustrating to a lot of people yeah i just don't understand how you can have those two sets of priorities where you think tabs are important but you also think tabs are so unimportant well, let's call it what it is so unimportant that their legibility doesn't matter in terms of the changing color backgrounds that finding them on your screen doesn't matter because they hop all around and change size mm -hmm. um, that the active one doesn't display the name of the page you're on it just displays the url and the big one, which is that after you've got more than like two or three tabs open, you literally can't tell the pages apart because you can only see the first word of whatever tab mm -hmm. is not selected. Plus the cognitive, I'll throw in the cognitive dissonance of the fact that you have a site like uh, Macworld that is blue, but you're on a site that's got a red header and then you're looking for Macworld. You can't look for the blue because it's not blue, it's red. That tab is red because the page you're on is red, even though that page that you're going to is blue. And that it's like, oh, I don't know. I, 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 and all, again, we could argue about the validity of, of what they're going for here, but I think it comes back to, for what? What do we gain by mm -hmm. all of this sacrifice? And the answer is, I don't know, a little bit of height on the, on the browser window, which like nobody was asking for on the, on the Mac. Nobody was asking for it. So I think it's, yeah, it's bad. It's bad and they should feel bad. And I really hope that they get enough feedback that there is enough um, fortitude within Apple to so enough courage to realize that they blew it and um, either fix it or undo it. And I actually, something I said in that review that I will, I will say here too, which is the act of cowardice is to just make an option to turn it off because what they need to do is fix it because it's bad. No, I don't want to say... Right, right. This is what I'm saying. Is, I mean, because I hear people like, just make me have a setting to go back no, the way no, it was. No, no, it's no. like, you know, that's not the issue here. The issue here is that this interface is bad. Making a setting to turn it off doesn't do anything to the fact that the interface is bad. And if it's the default, it's going to be inflicted on people from the beginning. And like, that's not, that's a, that is uh, running away from the issue, which is you got to own up to the fact that you try, you took your shot. You made a bold step. I admire what you did. Uh, it doesn't work. 
and you either got to fix it or you got to you got to throw it away but hiding it or hiding your mistake by saying well you can just opt out if you want to it's not good enough no i i don't think a, i don't think a setting is uh, is the right call and i usually don't with this kind of stuff it's kind of, you got to commit right because well again again i think that in the there look there are times where it's like natural scrolling right where it's like well there's really two ways to do this and we have a preferred way, but we understand that a lot of people prefer it the other way, and we're going to let people choose how they want to do it. But something like this, it's like a fundamental part of the interface of the of the app, mm-hmm. and they want to make a preference that's like, don't change. <laughs> and like, well, first off, it's obvious that that's going to go away at some point, uh, or you're maintaining two separate interfaces. And in this case, I don't think it's a fundamental, like, well, some people are illegible tab people and other people are legible tab people. Like, that's a false choice between two options. It's the reason you're offering it is because your new option is bad. So you want people to be able to escape it. Well, you should, that's not the right thing to do. The right mm-hmm. thing to do is fix your bad decisions and make them better. How do you feel about using shortcuts? on the Mac? Like if you've been building stuff and trying things out that maybe are more Mac focused than some of the shortcuts you've built in the past? So I haven't spent a lot of time with this mostly because shortcuts has been unstable of the interface itself. And because I turned off iCloud syncing on my new devices so that they don't mess up my shortcuts on my other devices. Although honestly, at this point, I'm probably going to rethink that because I've spent 99% of my time on the beta on my iPad instead of using, I expected to be using the other iPad that was not running the beta because the beta was going to be too much of a mess and it's not. And so I've been sticking with that iPad at which point I realized- I found iPadOS to be incredibly stable. Yeah. So I think at this point I may turn it back on. Um, I think what's going to end up happening for me a lot of the time is that I've I've implemented uh, shortcuts and I've implemented automation on the Mac in a different way. And I wrote about this on Six Colors a while ago where I realized like a lot of the automation that I was doing on the Mac was like way more kind of hacky and and tricky in order to get it to do stuff that was just kind of built into shortcuts. So my and I took one of those things that I built where I have a way to do it on the Mac, but I also built a shortcut to do it. And I ran it on uh, Monterey using shortcuts instead of using my Mac method. And it ran the first time. So my guess is the first thing I'm going to do is probably try to adopt as many existing shortcuts that I've built as possible on the Mac because they already work. Step two is what about all the other stuff I'm doing like an automator and moving that over to shortcuts, which should be fairly straightforward to do that Um, because most of that stuff is using shell scripts and there is a shell script command inside shortcuts. I think where I'm going to end up, uh, and this is something that I've been meaning to write about and I just sort of haven't gotten to it yet, but there's a platform detection thing in shortcuts where it'll say like, what device is this? And it returns Mac or iPad or iPhone. So I think what I'm going to do in the long run is I'm going to have single shortcuts that do tasks. And if I can't do them the same way on Mac and iPad, I will write into the shortcut, if I possibly can, do this on Mac, do this on iPad. And if I can get that to work, I think that would be the ideal. Is Then, then I only have one thing that I'm, I'm using and updating and it and it goes across even if not all the steps are the same between the two platforms. So I'm mm-hmm. excited about it. Um, 
it's really early days yet because like I said, I'm not living with it. And and it's my existing Mac that's got all the different automator things built in. But again, automator, for me, automator is almost entirely just a conduit to Apple script and shell scripts because Apple built integration with like the finder into uh, services and quick actions based on automator. Like automator is how you get into a finder contextual menu. So I put all of my stuff inside automator. Well, in Monterey, automator and shortcuts will get you into that menu. So I'll probably just start converting all of those things so that they run out of shortcuts instead. But it'll be easy because what it's really doing is firing off a bunch of scripts, whether they be um, Apple scripts or shell scripts or Python scripts or Perl scripts or whatever. You were kind of talking about like shortcuts seeming to get more powerful on the Mac over time because Mac automation can just, you know, just in general, just do a bunch of stuff when apps aren't open, things in the background, all that kind of stuff, like and, and shortcuts seems to be taking advantage of that. One of the things I was thinking about, like when I was reading you say that kind of stuff as well, is like do shortcuts end up getting more powerful on the Mac and then dragging iOS along? Or is it yeah. going to feel different? I, I don't know. So, I mean, in the short run, shortcuts is more powerful on the Mac and, and iOS isn't changing, right? Because yep. the stuff that they're adding on the Mac, they are adding more powerful things on, on both, right? There are a bunch of automator actions that will be on both that will allow you to do things on, on iOS that you cannot do before. But there are also the things that they're not bringing over. And what they're not bringing over is run a shell script, mm-hmm. run an Apple script. That kind of stuff is not there. Um, and and will Apple ever allow you to run something like that? Probably not. On iPad, probably not. Yeah. But I do think there's another level. I wrote about this on Macworld last week. There's what happens next, right? Because remember, Apple said this is a multi-year process. Well, one of the reasons it's a multi-year process is that Automator isn't automation on the Mac. It's a tool for automation on the Mac. So making Automator go away and be replaced with shortcuts, okay, that's great. That's step one. Mm -hmm. What's the rest of the process? Mac OS has this whole existing infrastructure where inter-application communication is handled by Apple events. And then you've got the scripting architecture, which is Apple script or JavaScript for applications. Um, you can actually use either one. So what what's the future of that? Um, my guess is that Apple Events is going to get deprecated, that it'll still be there for a few years, but that Apple will introduce another kind of like, this is the right way for apps to communicate with each other at a very basic level that allows you to do... I'd say the way I'm trying to explain it is most automation through shortcut actions is fairly straightforward. A lot of it is like, here is a thing that my app can do. And if you want to write a script that uses that thing, great. What shortcuts doesn't do a a lot of is remote control of apps where you say, hey, open this, you know, find this thing, then open this window, then get the text out of that window. Now move to the next one and open this window and get the text. That's what Apple script is really good at is like deep down into controlling an app. And then you write a script that controls multiple apps and they talk together and they do stuff. And like, that's where a lot of the magic happens on the Mac. So what's the future of that on the Mac? And what of that might be the future on iOS too? That's where I think that the Mac, bringing the Mac into this is going to benefit iOS in the future Mm. is that I can't imagine that if Apple says, okay, Apple events is going to go away, but what we're going to do is this is going to be the defined way that apps 
uh, communicate with one another and offer themselves up to be controlled. Use this method, whatever it is. And maybe it's based on something on iOS and maybe it's not. But like, mm-hmm. this is what we're going to do. I have a hard time imagining that they'd say that and they wouldn't make that available on iOS too, right? Well, I think, you know, t- to your point about like, can could it end up making uh, iOS shortcuts more powerful? Like just the mere inclusion of shortcuts on the Mac has made iOS shortcuts more powerful. Sure. Like, there are now iPadOS windowing and multitasking shortcuts that just didn't exist before, right. but now you kind can, of have to. You can, you can use a shortcut to generate um, uh, text-to-speech yeah. and save it as a file. You could, yeah. n- you could not do that before, and now so, you can because they brought over those automator actions. It is possible, I think, and quite feasible to, to believe that as they continue to add to shortcuts on the Mac, it, you, we won't get everything on the iOS version, but it will continue to accelerate what that version right. can do i think faster than if it was just on its own so so this is I, yeah and that's basically what i'm saying is this transition on the mac is going to force apple to make some decisions about what it wants the future of these other automation technologies to be on mac os and i have a hard time believing that they wouldn't make those decisions with ios in mind so if they're going to replace apple events eventually with something what is the official way you do that all apps are going to follow it. Hard to believe that that wouldn't be the case on both platforms. Likewise, scripting. So AppleScript and JavaScript are there now. I think that in the long run, you I, I can't see AppleScript surviving. It'll be deprecated and hang around for a while. But I like it. It, it is it is very old technology. Um, I don't think Apple wants to keep it alive. I think that it's far more likely that what Apple is going to do is bless a new scripting language or languages and say, these are the ones that you use to write the scripts that use the new inner application communication method. Um, I think that there's always going to be a hunger for like writing scripts that are much more sophisticated than building little blocks and shortcuts as great as that is. You even see this now, this impulse is happening now. There's an app called jelly cuts, uh, jellycuts.com that literally you write scripts in a language that this developer invented and they turn into shortcuts. So you write your shortcuts in code and then they are turned into shortcuts, right? And like, that's wild, but like, that's the impulse, which is there is a level above building uh, shortcuts out of little building blocks where you want to do something more sophisticated. So what's the future of that? Apple script was that. And then they added the JavaScript for application, JXA kind of layer. So my guess is, although I I think it's possible that they will say JavaScript, and there's a lot of good work being done out there with JavaScript. Sal, who y'all know, Sal Segoian, um, who used to be at Apple and was the AppleScript guy, he has spent the last few years building this amazing automation technology in OmniGroup apps that's all based on JavaScript and it's cross-platform. So you can completely remote control Omni's apps on the iPad and on the Mac using JavaScript, right? But they've had to build that themselves. And that's the problem is all these apps have their own JavaScript engine or their own Python engine or whatever. And they're all different. So the scripts aren't interoperable and they can't talk to, you know, you can't move a script from one text editor to another, even if they're both using JavaScript. I tried that. It's like, nope, they're different JavaScripts. They don't work the same. Uh, and they don't talk to each other except through URLs or shortcuts or whatever, right? They, they, this whole part of it is just missing. 
Um, my gut feeling is what Apple's going to do is say, hey, you know what would be good for this is Swift and introduce a sort of Swift Playgrounds kind of level version of Swift that people can use to script applications at a high level. And that would, again, probably be on the Mac and on iPhone and iPad, which would be funny, but it makes sense if you think about it. Like Apple doesn't necessarily want to put Perl or Python or anything like that on iOS, but application control through Apple's approved channels via Apple's approved scripting language, which has very specific limitations, I could see them doing that in a heartbeat. So if I had to make a guess, that would be my guess. And I think this is when they say multi-year, this is what they're talking about. Is this, is, this is going to take three or four years for them to really get a, a handle of. But I do think that I have a hard time imagining Apple building all of those things on the Mac and then not putting them on the iPad. Like the whole point of building them anew on the Mac has got to be that they're going to be the future of this tool set and it's going to run on all of apps, all of Apple's app platforms that are appropriate for this kind of thing, which at this point I think is really the iPad and the Mac. Other than shortcuts, let's kind of look at some of the other things. FaceTime, we did a FaceTime call. Yeah, we did. It's in screenshots in my in my story. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's you, me, uh, Dan, and Stephen. Yeah. And we used the web version. I used the web version uh-huh. of FaceTime on my iPad, which was really confusing to me. I, like I clicked <laughs> a link and I don't know why. So if you, when I clicked the link that you sent, it opened in Safari, which I wasn't expecting. I don't know if this is going to be the intended behavior, but I figured it would open in the FaceTime app, but it didn't do that, which was weird yeah i i mean it's a beta it also yeah. was really unreliable and weird and, and that janky. my story my story basically says hey facetime and SharePlay are interesting and i have some questions about their long-term viability mm-hmm. i think that it's better and i think that it's worth a try and i think apple needs to do it it's almost table stakes but at the same time i kind of can't judge it yet because it doesn't really work quite right yeah. and i want to give them the benefit of the doubt at yes. least I do have some skepticism. I think what my caption for that screenshot of our FaceTime chat was is like, it still looks weird. Like, they, they're like grid view. So we're kind of like Zoom. And it's like, yeah, but you're not. It's still weird. It's still, I don't know. There's something about FaceTime group conversations that's still strange. But it's early. They're going to make changes. Hopefully, it'll become more stable. Um, I will put it out there that this this is unstable enough that it makes me think this could be one of those maybe not the first release we'll see how it goes this summer um but some of these features it wouldn't shock me if some of these features are not quite there facetime stuff has always been delayed yeah every time it's like files and facetime any anything they add to those two applications they never come out in september it always comes out later um in using uh Monterey. Were there any like little details like outside of the standard big tempo things that stuck out to you as as nice ad- changes to the operating system? I mean, there's lots of fun little things. I mean, the password manager is amazing and is kind of like a full-on password manager including uh one-time codes. Mm-hmm. It's hidden away in the preferences app, but it is it is very powerful. Um 
Finder has some new things in it. The go-to folder command, I got way too excited about this, but basically <laughs> the, goal, the go-to folder command is fast now. It feels, Woo. if you type a path that you want to jump to, it feels like oh, so fast at auto-expanding it and stuff. It's so uh, good. Isn't it great? Well, oh, it's so you good. say that, but like Apple hides the library folder now, so that if you want to go inside the library folder, you actually have to use go to and then type in the library folder. And then I type app, and I want it to expand to application support, and it doesn't always do it, and I, you have to hit tab, and that all happens a lot faster now. It's very responsive. But how about this one? If a file copy breaks because like your network goes down, uh, when your network comes back, it 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 picks up. Where it left off, I do think can, that's like, super cool. You can resume copies, copies that don't that don't go well. Can they sort of show up? It's almost like a download, except it's just in the Finder, um, showing the progress bar, and you can it it will resume. So I did this. I disconnected my computer from mm-hmm. the network, and the the it broke, and then I reconnected it. And I was gonna see like what the interface was to resume the transfer, and it uh, there was none. It just resumed the transfer and got the file. Um, so that's that's pretty that good. That is really cool. And, and there's more um, more feedback in Finder Windows about files that are being copied. It does the little uh, little circle with a little piece of pie kind of fill-in mm-hmm. thing where um, when you're in a file transfer, it's still got the little file transfer window that's visible, but you can actually see each individual file, like its progress in the Finder as it's being copied. Um, so there's little some little details like that. And... Uh, and low power mode where um, they're downclocking the processor and lowering the brightness in order to eke out more uh, battery life. I don't know the details of exactly how that's working, and I imagine it's different for every processor, but they are uh, making an attempt to let Mac batteries last longer if you are willing for your Mac to be a little bit slower. Do you think that this is worth installing right now? Like enthusiasts listening to the show... Um, is there much of a reason to install Monterey right now? I'd say unless you are a really enthusiastic shortcuts user. Right, that could be it. Mm. Or user automation person on the Mac, and you want to start diving into that. But I'll warn you, it's one of the most unstable parts because the app is brand new, mm-hmm. and they're fixing lots of bugs there. So like that that app just quits. You like You're suddenly like, oh, it's gone. Or you drag something and it and it doesn't drag right and you can't see anything and you have to quit it. Like it's it's just a mess right now. But I it's a it's a 1.0. I'm pretty sure that'll be ready by the time they ship. Um, it works. It just the interface is kind of a mess at the moment. Right. But I you know I don't know. I mean Safari is bad and shortcuts is still a work in progress. And I think you could probably wait. Like I don't think and the fa- FaceTime stuff is still a little unstable. So, you know, I don't think there's anything here. I think this is going to be one of those releases that has a bunch of little improvements. I think this is going to be much less of a trial for people to upgrade than the last two versions Mm -hmm. of macOS have been. That all said, I think also it doesn't have something so compelling that you need to do it over the summer. Yeah, I'll say like it's going to be a day one upgrade for me when it's out because of all of the things that become compatible with iOS and iPadOS. So things like tab groups, focus modes, all that kind of stuff that's like yeah. un- unusual for the Mac to be so um, day one with features. Yeah. I would say if you love tabs, tab groups could be a thing that you update to mm-hmm. see, but the problem is then you have to take the bad Safari tabs, which are not, they're bad. 
Yeah. I'd wait. I'd wait to see if Apple makes some changes to make that more palatable. Otherwise you're, you're, you know, I'm, I am a tab user who's interested in tab groups. It's like, yes, but also have you seen the tabs? Like that's a tough one. That's a tough one. It's a good bad for tab enthusiasts. So I, I never install Mac betas. I always install iOS and iPadOS betas. I, I always feel like for me, the amount of destruction that could occur if something goes wrong with my Mac is far greater. Like yeah. it, It's both more powerful and therefore feels more fragile to me that if I mess stuff up with my Mac or things aren't going to work right on my Mac, that's going to be vastly more mm-hmm. disruptive to me than if things go wrong on my iPhone or my iPad for a while. It actually is the case that I think we use our Macs as our, our kind of refuge. They are a mm. stable place. Yep. Um, they are the place where we get some of our, our most crucial work done. Um, whereas I get, I do work on my iPad all the time, but like, and I need it to be stable, but I needed to, what I ask of it is like, please allow me to write articles in a text editor. Right. I, yep. I that's what I need out of my iPad. Most please let me time. check my email, you know, like, uh, but on know. my Mac, it's like, I need audio hijack to work and zoom to work and video streaming software to work and loop back to work. I need all of this stuff to work. And, you know, Rogue Amoeba makes a bunch of that. And I love that software, but Rogue Amoeba is working down at very low level system stuff that is often completely changed across versions. And they have to spend all summer working to qualify that stuff and get it to function properly. And I don't know how bad that's going to be. I, my my guess is that it's a lot easier for them this summer than it has been in the past, and this stuff will be able to be made more compatible quickly. But, like, I can't take my Mac onto the betas if all the tools that I use to do podcasts break, right? Mm-hmm. Like, then mm-hmm. where do I do my podcast? So I'd really rather not. I would also just like to say, for the record... And maybe people are just going to get mad at me for saying this. If you want to install the betas on your devices, just go for it. Enjoy it. Live your life. You know, I know everyone says all the time, nobody should install the betas. But if you want to do it, go for it. That's why they have the public beta. Go for it. Go wild. You love this technology. Have fun. The iPad and the iPhone are actually pretty stable at this point. So I think they're okay. On the Mac, what I would say is, if you can, do it on a separate partition or an external drive because you can't do that on the iPad yeah. or the iPhone, do it, but do you it can that do that on the Mac. Because you can, right? So you might as well take that extra step. But like, if you want to put iPadOS 15 on your iPad, Mike's saying it's okay for you to do Mike it. Mike says ahead, it's okay. Go wild. All right. You know, like I, it, it, Mike <sighs> says it's okay, and, and Apple says it's okay. Apple says it's okay. It's why the public, public beta you know, they have the developer betas where it's like, do not install this unless you are a developer developing software. The public beta is like, yeah, you want to install it? Go for it. Go for it. Go wild. Yeah. Have fun. Like, you know, like, just have fun. Enjoy yourself. This episode is brought to you by OneBlocker. OneBlocker is a premier content blocker for Safari on iOS and the Mac. In addition to blocking obtrusive ads, OneBlocker can also block trackers, annoying pop-ups, cookie notices, comment sections if you don't want to see them on blogs, YouTube, and many, many more. And it's super easy to configure this. The app will guide you through the process, which is basically just flipping a few switches. And after you turn on OneBlocker, you can close the app and enjoy the sites without ads and the other content you don't want to see. You 
just set it up and forget about it, and you'll get a better experience. One Blocker has been made in Indi- has been has been made by an indie developer since 2015, featured by Apple, TechCrunch, our friends at Mac Stories, and many more. The average app has six trackers, but One Blocker has a new in-app tracker blocking called Firewall, which automatically blocks known trackers, analytics services, user behavior measurement services, email tracking pixels, and more in all apps on your iOS device. It is a great addition to Safari content blockers that work only in Safari, so this helps you across the system. One Blocker is secure by design. All the blocking is performed in the background on the device itself. Your traffic isn't sent through any service which also means no slowdowns. For me, by and large, I'm okay with the ads that I see on most of the sites that I visit. My biggest annoyance on the web is the absolute onslaught of cookie notices that I encounter online. Every single website that I go to wants me to check and uncheck a bunch of boxes before I can actually see what I want. It is absolutely maddening. Like, I have a link. I just want to go and read an article, which will take me 20 seconds, but I have to spend 10 seconds unchecking and checking a bunch of boxes so I'm not giving a bunch of data that I don't otherwise want to give. One blocker helps me get rid of all of these, and it greatly improves my web experience. As a listener of Upgrade, you can get a two-week free trial plus a month of premium for free at oneblocker.com slash upgradefm. Oneblocker is a universal purchase, so just buy it once and you can download it onto your iOS and macOS devices. It also supports family sharing of up to six people. So get a two-week free trial plus a month of premium for free at oneblocker.com. That's the number one, blocker.com, slash UpgradeFM. A thanks to OneBlocker for the support of this show and RelayFM. Let's finish up today with some hashtag AskUpgrade questions. First one comes in from Andrew. Andrew says, I have just bought a fourth-gen iPad since it has a USB-C connector. I think it's an iPad Air, right? The fourth-gen iPad Air. Since it has a USB-C connector, can I use non-Apple dongles for HDMI or SD card readers and stuff like that, or do I have to use stuff that Apple has made? I think you can. I'm not 100% on that. I've Um, used all kinds of dongles with my iPad Pro, so I don't see any reason why not. If it's a device type, a USB device type that the OS supports, it should work, right? Like, yeah. if it can support an HDMI out, which it can, yeah. it should just work fine. If it supports SD card readers, which it does, mm-hmm. it should just work. Yeah, can't, it has to be the type it, of but... thing, as you say, that the iPad OS can handle, which right. you know, for HDMI output, no problem. SD card readers, no problem. You know, flash, uh, like storage stuff and, all, you know, keyboards, mice, and dongles, and all that kind, it works fine. And I've used stuff from um, Hyperdrive, OWC, uh, 12 South. I've used all kinds of little uh, USB um, hubs and stuff like that, and, and they all work. So, it, yes, it, stuff does work, but as I say, it has to be stuff that is approved by, or like av- available to the system. Right. Ryan asks, if Safari kept the redesign... Uh, as a developer beta 2, would you change your primary browser? Mm, I don't know. Only because I do really like Safari and I use it across all my devices. And I don't I don't want to get in a situation where I'm not using the same browser across all the platforms. Well, you can I now, lose. though, right? You can change your default browser on iOS and iPadOS. I, I, 
I know, but then I have to use. So if I want to keep all my history and bookmarks and tabs yes. and stuff in sync, I it means I have to like run Chrome on my Mac. And I don't I don't really want to do that, but we'll see. Like I I don't want to be that person who says uh if Safari changes I'm leaving because that's not necessarily true. Um but it would be it would be painful. It would be painful. I would have to think about it, I guess is what I would say. I'd have to weigh the consequences and try it out and see if there was a better experience to be had in yeah. another browser. Maybe I didn't make this clear. I definitely can live with Safari as it is. Like, I would prefer refinements to the design, but Mike Hurley personally, I can live with it. Like, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I, now, asterisk, I've not used the iPhone version, and it does seem like the iPhone version of Safari is actually the most egregious um, from, you know, the, the people that I've heard that have used them all or the people that have used some and complaining. The complaints coming from how it is on the iPhone seems much worse but so i my main use has been on the ipad but with the ipad and you know because that will transfer up to the mac version i can live with that um i wouldn't i don't i don't think i would switch because of it uh but i would like to see them like everybody else make some refinements and uh in the chat room they're saying oh there's more options than just chrome jason and the answer is um if i had to choose to use like brave or firefox or something i would just stay with safari I think Chrome is the only one I would even consider using. Hmm. I think I would agree with you. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we're going to hear from our and, Opera and exists. Wanna... We know Opera exists. Okay. Because well, again, because again, what you're committing to is using it on all platforms. Like, mm. and I've used some of those browsers, and I, I don't, I don't like Chrome especially, but like, I'm not using Firefox ever again. Sorry, Firefox fans. Nope, not going to happen. Tim asks, do you think Apple would ever make a waterproof iPad so I can live out my dream of using an already waterproofed smart keyboard floating on the pool without the worry of my iPad getting destroyed? I would love I this. It... I don't know if they would do it, but like, why not do it though, you know? I, I It feels like it's not a priority, but I'll tell you that there was definitely that moment where all of the Kindles got waterproofed right like mm -hmm. all the e-readers were suddenly like oh yeah uh, jeff bezos you know is reading his kindle in the in a ziploc bag <laughs> in the mm -hmm. <laughs> right? it's like no 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 let's waterproof this thing the question is like okay what is going to motivate apple to waterproof an ipad let's also keep in mind that apple doesn't really waterproof its devices right it water resistance their devices but if they get if they get water ingress it isn't covered and it's your fault. They're just trying to reduce the number of repairs. But I want at, at least what I have on my iPhone. You know, even though it's not full. Like, I, I want the level of protection I have from water yep. on my iPhone on my iPad. It's just more, it's more work that they have to put in to do that over a larger area. So. I know. But I the, still want it. The, <laughs> on an infinite, well, this is would they. It's like yeah, on an infinite time scale, maybe, but I don't think it's a priority. No, I don't. And so either. I think it's less likely. Although I could see somebody arguing that like the iPad Mini yeah. should be waterproof, yes, or something like that, right? Yeah, start there. I can, maybe. I can get on board with that. I can get on board with that. Ryan asks. I think this is the same Ryan from before. Multiple Ryan questions today. Oh boy. Do you prefer to hide, close, or minimize your windows on the Mac, and why? I was gonna say. 
uh, I was going to reject this question and say none of the above, but then I realized if that was true, I would have an infinite number of yeah, windows. Yeah, they would never close. I th- so I think me and you might be quite similar here, actually. So the, the answer is close. I will occasionally hide an app, Command-H, mm-hmm. old school, where just all the app windows disappear. They're not living in the dock. They're just gone. Yeah. Until I bring the app back. Yep. I will do that occasionally. Yep. Um and but I very, very, very rarely minimize to the dock. Um so I, I'd say close a strong number one with hide a very distant number two and then minimize a even more distant number three. Well for me it's like and why? I don't know. I mean, for the most part for, first off, I hate minimizing things in the dock because then you click and they fly out of the dock and it's like no. Mm-hmm. I don't like that behavior drives me crazy. Like I, I really want to occasionally I'll do a, a video in picture in picture on the Mac and then I'll hide the browser window that it's in, in the dock. I'll minimize it because I want it to go away. Cause I don't need the browser window. I just need the video and the video is playing picture in picture. It's great. But then I want to open a new browser window and I like click on Safari and it, rather than opening a new window, it just brings that one out of the dock or I click on a link somewhere else and mm-hmm. rather than opening a new window, it brings it out of the dock. It's like, I don't want it out of the dock. No. I put it in the dock. I want it to stay in the dock and it won't do it. So I get very frustrated by windows I put in the dock come out of the dock when I haven't given them permission, right? It's like, no, stay there. Bad dog. <laughs> Bad window. Stay in the dock. So uh, it, that's frustrating. So, and then hide. I do hide when there's too much going on. I will, I will hide. But most of the time I'm either using it or I'm not. And it's, that means it's open or it's closed and that's it. I think we're pretty similar for me. It's the app is either open or it's closed. Very rarely hidden. Never minimize. I don't understand minimizing. Yeah. It, it's I just, I, mean, I, I guess people there, I guess there must be minimizers out there, right? Yeah. Who love be. it. They're the, they're minimizers, big minimizers, but not, um, not me. Maximal minimizes, right? That's sure. Yep. <laughs> Minimizians? Sure. No, they're just mi- big minimizers. Mm-hmm. If you would like to send in a question for us to answer on a future episode of Upgrade, just send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade, or you can send them in uh, via the Relay FM members Discord. All you need to do is use question mark AskUpgrade, and you can send it in there. You get access to that. Uh, Discord, if you support this show with uh, Upgrade Plus membership, go to getupgradeplus.com. You can sign up. You'll get access to a bunch of wonderful benefits, but also longer ad-free versions of every episode of Upgrade. Don't forget, we have merch available just for a short period of time at upgradeyourwardrobe.com. Three summer of fun focused t-shirts, kind of two and a half, for uh, just one more week. And don't forget as well, the 360 plan available to you right now in the show notes of this episode. If you want to download high quality or two very low quality versions of this show, (laughs) you can do that. Uh, If you do that, I would love to know how you listened to it, uh, if and why. Um, so please let us know. You can send in that feedback. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, I would also like to thank OneBlocker, Memberful, and Smile for their support of this episode. I'd like to thank you for listening. If you want to find Jason online, go to sixcolors.com, and he is at jsnell, J-S-N-E-L-L, on Twitter, and I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Until next time, say goodbye, Jason Snell. Goodbye, Mike Early. 